Welcome to my podcast. Today I'm sitting in the library in Highclere Castle. It is so peaceful. And I'm joined by Gavin Thurston, friend, cameraman, author, and perhaps best known for being the cameraman accompanying David Attenborough around the world. So welcome, Gavin. Thank you so much for coming and joining me today. And I think you've just come back, haven't you, from one of your latest trips? I have indeed. Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me (laughs) along today. Absolute privilege. I thought it was only my mother that was interested in the book, but hopefully it's beyond that. (laughs) Yeah, Um, uh, yeah, I've actually just been away to uh, Brazil and Zimbabwe. I had to rack my brains there to think where I've been (laughs) for two upcoming projects. I can't say too much about them in this day and age of NDAs, but... um, uh, again, natural history based, uh, yes. both primate based. I won't say any more than that. But um, yes, I'm still gallivanting around. People luckily will still send me to these far flung places to to film these things. Completely. And I, um, you came very kindly to a history festival and I bought, and I think you've also given me other copies of your wonderful book, Journeys in the Wild, with a foreword by... David Attenborough, which is really your life as a cameraman going around with probably one of the most extraordinary and most admired men in the world. Is that what you would describe as Yeah. Well? I mean, firstly, huge thanks to David for actually agreeing to write the, the forward. He also recorded the forward for the audiobook, um, because I think without his name on the front, it probably wouldn't have done half as well if it just had my name on the front. But um, yeah, I've been very lucky to work with David over the last, oh, I think, 35, 36 years, something like that. Um, uh, we've been all over the place. We've been to the North Pole, South Pole, many places in between and shared many adventures um and he's kind of despite the generation gap because he's 96 now and in fact i'm working with him again um at the end of next week uh, he's still he's still going strong strongish um uh, despite that kind of age difference he's kind of just so down to earth and so personable um you know he kind of gets on with anybody really uh, and i think that's part of his longevity the fact that he's not he's got no airs or graces he's got no you know pomp and circumstance you know if we're sleeping in a tent on location he would sleep in a tent you know he doesn't get flown off to his Winnebago or anything like some stars <laughs> might um he's just an all-round good guy really um and I think what he's done in terms of empowering not just our nation but so many um viewers who've seen his programs empowering them with information and a passion for nature and wildlife and the natural world um, he's probably done more for conservation indirectly than anybody else on this planet, I think. I think he probably has. And part of the way he's shared his passion, views and concerns for the planet has been through the camera lens. And that is part of your role within it. And presumably when he's standing up in front, trying to stand up and not 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 get knocked over by animals, insects or anything else, as you try to convey what the latest story is. So that must put... Does it put some pressure on you to... To make sure you get the best shots, do you, or do you um, just so enjoy it that you're not concerned? I mean, I enjoy it, and I think, to be fair, I have one of the easiest jobs in the world because the natural world has so much beauty in it, um, and we're all aware of that. Uh, you know, whether it's tending a garden, or if you've got a window box in your flat, or whether you have a house plant in your house, or whether you have pet dogs or cats, we all have a connection with the natural world, and we all get some kind of enjoyment from it. I mean, look at. Um, Take New York or London, for example, when people stop for lunch. 
I bet the number of people who choose to leave the office and go and sit in Central Park or leave the office and go and sit in Richmond, Richmond Park or somewhere, you know, on green grass or under a tree just to eat their sandwich because they prefer to be in that environment rather than in, in an office. So I think I've got an easy job that generally in, in the, the natural world, whatever you point your camera at, is beautiful anyway. Um, hopefully there's some skill involved in kind of, obviously you've got to get it in focus. Um, hopefully there's some skill involved in terms of the angle you choose and the lighting and the framing and that and kind I of stuff. patience, isn't it patience or? Well, loads of people say that. I mean, I don't think I'm a particularly patient person. I think what takes patience is dealing with people. So for instance, if you, I don't know, say you work at an information desk in a shopping mall, and somebody comes up and says, oh, excuse me, where are the toilets? And they say, you just say, just down there on the right where it says toilets. And the next person says, oh, excuse me, um, can you tell me where the toilets are? Please? He says, just down there on the right where it says toilets. And the third person and so on. And then you no, know the next day, the next day you go in and the same people are asking, well, or different people are asking the same questions. You think, that would try my patience. But sitting for an animal to do a bit of behaviour, whether it's a bird to lay an egg... Um, you're in the most amazing office in the world, wherever you might be, whether you're on a platform up a tree or in a hide. Yes, you might be waiting for that bird to lay an egg or to come and feed its chicks. But meanwhile, a dragonfly will buzz by or you've got this 3D sound of, you know, birdsong and wind through the trees and the breeze on your face and so on. I mean, you're in the most amazing offices around the world. So, you know, to think that takes patience for me is kind of a bit cheeky, really. I mean, I, I just love it. And I think... Anybody else in my um, with the same craft and in the same field as me? That's excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know all the other cameramen and camera women and producers and assistant producers and so on who go on location probably share the same passion as me. That it's you know I hate the term privilege, but it is a privilege to um, be put in those positions to spend time in, in in nature. So I don't think it takes patience at all for me. How did you become a cameraman? How did you get into what? I think of you as doing and photographing wildlife. Where was the starting point? It's kind of, I mean, I cover some of it in my books. I won't, I'll I'll kind of praise it in case anybody, in case anybody reads it. Yeah. Um, I think the first time I realised the power of photography, I was, I went on a school trip to Dudley Zoo and my kind Auntie Mary lent me a box brownie, which you probably remember. Yes. Many people listening may not even know what a box brownie is. (laughs) It's not a, a guide in uniform or whatever. It's, it's a small camera literally shaped like a box, fits in your hands. It takes a roll of film, 12 pictures. It's very simple. You point it at what you want to take a picture of and push the button. That's it, and then wind it on. And then back in the day, before iPhones and digital cameras, you would then take that, as you remember, I'm sure, you would take the film to the chemist. 10 days, two weeks later, you'd go and pick it up and you'd have 12 pictures and the negatives. And I remember when I came home from that trip, I said to my mum, I said, oh, it's amazing. We saw elephants and giraffe and we saw this giant fish leaping out of the water. and sure enough, when I picked up the photographs, of course, the first photograph was like my feet out of focus. The next was some <laughs> distant elephant and a you know, giraffe behind a tree. Anyway, the fourth or fifth picture on the, uh, on the roll was this orca almost completely out of the water, touching its nose on a beach ball. Now, of course, we know now that orca are intelligent, sentient animals and should not be in swimming pools anywhere around the world. They should, and thankfully, that you know that is changing and mm. i think they're not breeding them in captivity anymore um but the fact that i can show you there's a picture in the book i can show you that picture what 50 odd years on if i'm counting <laughs> um and i can show you that i can share with you that split second moment mm. when i push that button when that orca was right out of the water so photography is a really powerful medium um and i suppose 
I probably didn't realise it then. It's probably only when I wrote the book that I realised the power, you know, how powerful that is, that I can still share that, that one moment, you know, all these years on. Um, but then I suppose that sparked an interest in photography. I was a very keen artist at school, but I was bloody useless at it. <laughs> you know, I could literally, you've got all the, you know, you've got your oils or your watercolours and you've got a canvas or, you know, you've, or you've got your pad and you can see the sunflowers in the vase on the table and you start painting it and you, you know, in your mind, you've got this amazing Van Gogh image. And of course, what it looks like as a child of six has just scribbled all over the painting. <laughs> and it didn't matter. That's where I had no patience because my brain and my hand could not recreate what I wanted to create on the picture. But photography, I think for all of us, is a very easy art form. Um, you know, we all do it. We take a picture and then you show your phone to somebody straight away. You kind of share that image you've captured. You put it on Instagram, you put it on social media, whatever. Um, so I suppose my passion started with that first photograph of the orca um, and thankfully grew, um, grew into a career. Yes, it's amazing, and you're completely right. And my, my, and my parents were as bad photographers as I was with my little box brownie, and it's so annoying now because we have got very few and really bad photographs looking backwards. And I and my sisters really treasure them. And going forwards, I always hope that people might write, including myself, I suppose, who's in the photographs underneath. Yeah. And there is something about printing them out and putting them in a book because the phones and the digital medium aren't necessarily those that you can share for future centuries or generations no. in a way that we could in the past. I think, Although, there's, yeah. I think there's going to be a huge gap in our history. Yeah, I mean, yes. if you look back 5,000 years, well, this is topical, obviously, with your ancestry and, and, and your recent book. Um, you know, you look at the hieroglyphs of Egypt and we can decipher them, we can see what they say and, and how they read. So we've got a kind of a history of that. Um, and then you go all the way through history, we've got, you know, various scriptures, we've got the Doomsday Book and all these different things, we've got records. And then, of course, when photography was introduced, uh, what, Fox Talbot, was it? In, uh, I should know all this, but I don't. Yes, no, I should <laughs> Google, too, but Google. I'm going um, But, you know, when photography first started, we've now, you can look at those pictures, it's the same as my orca photograph, and share that moment and all the way up and probably till the maybe mid 90s and late 90s when digital starts to take over from film and I think the last 20 years in the future you're going to look back and there's going to be a sudden void a big gap of no pictures because I mean can you you know will we still be able to open a JPEG on a you know an old PC you know Windows 93 or whatever it was you know in 20 years time will we be able to actually even access those pictures so I think you're absolutely right um, where possible even if you just choose five pictures a year print them and don't just print them on your printer at home because you leave it in the sunlight and within I don't know within five years there'll just be a blank page again you know get them properly printed um, or you can create now these um, uh, you know, picture books. Yes. Um, again, you can send them off online, and those are pretty good because obviously the pages are closed, so those those prints will last for hopefully hundreds of years. But I think otherwise there will be this massive gap in our history. And as you say, you know, you were talking about your own family and how few photographs and how mm. treasured they are. And I think it'll it'll be too late if we don't do it now. Mm. We'll look back and we'll have this big gap in our 
in our history. And Although I suspect some of the films and camera work you've done will still be there as an archive, but in a sense that's more of a central archive, I think, for humankind rather than the personal ones, which is which is yeah. actually what I like about your book. It's the personal stories or, or when you've driven badly, it's all gone wrong with the Land Rovers. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I really like. That. Yeah. So, um, so is there a favourite mishap that you'd like to reveal before people read your book, which, by the way, just to remind everyone, is called Journeys in the Wild, The Secret Life of a Cameraman by my beloved guest, Gavin Thurston. So, But um, those are the things that I like. So what would you like to share of your mishaps? Um, Where do you start? There are so many. Oh, I think the one thing, <laughs> the sad thing, writing the book, is I realised that I spent most of my time making mistakes. <laughs> As I'm long so as I think, but I think somebody once said, as long as you don't say, make the same mistake twice, if you make it twice, you're stupid. If you make a mistake once, that's kind of forgivable and you learn from it. And hopefully what I've written in the book... Do you know, actually... I think making mistakes is the only way to go forwards. I think yeah, it's yeah. really important. And I think I I was so lucky because when I grew up, there weren't phones. So no one saw you making an awful <laughs> lot of mistakes. You just made them and thought, well, oh, I'll dust myself down and try not to do it again. Although yeah. sometimes, obviously, we do. But, but I would agree, and it's very unfair because obviously you're, I think your life and the stories are, are once of a achieve- one. It's extraordinary achievements in sometimes really difficult circumstances and challenging circumstances where you are trying to film. But there are some funny stories. Which well, I can, certainly tell, make I can me tell you a brief story, one that yeah. isn't in the book, so oh, I yeah. don't, won't spoil the book. But um, often when you're a filming, um, sometimes you will try and get the sound as well. So I don't know whether you know, but when you're filming wildlife, we've got such good lenses now, such long lenses that often you can't even hear the thing you're filming because it's so far away. So a lot of the sound is recorded afterwards and then dubbed over. Some of it is Foley, but most of it is natural sounds. Um, And one example of this, we were staying in a camp in northern Kenya and we were doing um, a short film about animals living alongside um, humans and how basically we kind of get along, you know, whether it's ants using a human footbridge over a little stream to get from one side to the other or whatever it might be. And um, part of that story was this elephant, quite often in Africa, elephants will come into camps, you know, these tented camps, because if a tree comes into fruit or seed, the elephant normally would come and feed from it. The fact that there's some tents there, it's not going to stop it. And there's almost like a kind of an understanding that when an elephant comes into a camp, it understands it's not going to get shot or chased away, and likewise it won't chase you away. So there's kind of this mutual amnesty for that period. And um, so I was in this camp in northern Kenya, I think it was on the Tiva River, and this elephant, we were there specifically to film this elephant coming to camp. And the tents, some of the tents were only about three, three metres, ten feet apart. And this elephant was gently squeezed between the tents, tipped over the guy ropes. Was, I mean, incredible. This is something that weighs, you know, three tonnes or something. And it would get to this tree and then it would shake the tree and eat all the, the acacia seeds that fell off. But when it squeezed past the tents, and it never knocked anything over, and never tripped on a guy rope. It knew exactly where its feet were, a bit like a cat walking across a dining room table or something, if you allow that. And... Um, um, anyway, one thing that was nice is the the, um, the sound of the skin of the elephant dragging down the tent. And I said to the producer at the time, I said, when we finish filming this, I must get some sound of, of that, for, you know, for the foley to put on afterwards. Anyway, so we filmed for an hour or so. The elephant eventually wandered off. So while I remembered, it was fresh in my mind. I went and got the sound recording kit, put the headphones on. So I had the recorder hanging around my neck, had the microphone. And I walked out. I'll just walk away from the kitchen to the edge of the camp to the furthest tent, you know, away from all the noise. Um, 
so and I was basically just going to rub my hand down the canvas to get that sound. Anyway, so I walk off round. I'm look, twiddling with the dials, looking down. Come round the last tent, twiddling with the dials, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this giant grey thing charging at me. And I look up, and it's this elephant. And I've got so in kind of in the zone, I completely forgot there's this bloody grey elephant. And um, this elephant charged, and I, I had no chance to run. And this elephant stopped about four feet from me with its ears out, and um, I kept control of all my, my bladder functions, but there's this elephant towering over me and he just rumbled and his, his front leg was kind of hovering off the ground. Anyway, he just reversed away. And he basically just said, he just charged me, say, hey, what the bloody hell are you doing? And it's almost like he wagged his finger at me. He's just, just watch where you're going, I'm still here. And um, so again, through my own stupidity, I very nearly got flattened by the elephant I'd been filming for television, but thankfully elephants generally are not malicious unless they've been treated badly by humans um but yes there's lots of mistakes i've made and that was one of them which thankfully i'm still wow. here to tell <laughs> yes that, that was quite a rubbish one you don't get all the actions with a podcast do you but no, otherwise you i'd run around, around you are years. waving your hands around beautifully <laughs> yes. and twiddling your knobs as waving well, my ears and yes. on your machines so yes completely fine did you in the end then rub your hand along the tent to get the sound i chose right? a different did tent you? to do did the sound on. yes <laughs> out of respect and not wanting to get flattened by the elephant oh, but golly. yeah Funnily enough, I've written a book about the fifth Earl of Carnarvon and he was out in the bush in South Africa looking for a rhino and he wasn't really a big game hunter, which is fortunate for my book and the sentiments of today's yeah. world, although I know they were a little bit different then. But he um, 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 had not shot a rhino, but he was wandering back to his tent and the rhino then caught sight of him and he just dropped everything and ran and managed to get himself up a tree. (laughs) And then after that, he thought it was a sign from God, actually, that he shouldn't be, well, a sign from someone on high. And he was determined not to go and try his luck anywhere else after that. He was a photographer, I don't know if you know, but he was one of the early photographers of, of the time and president of the camera club. Wow. And he ended I'm up... I'm going to have to look it um, up now. I should know this. I shouldn't No, no, you shouldn't yet. at all. I was absolutely staggered by... I've got four or 500 of the photographs, and yeah. I, I knew and know how good they are. But um, I was then reading about... He put the photographs in for exhibitions. He was asked to open exhibitions. He then... Um, helped fund uh, Dover Art Studios in which Bertram Park um, took photographs and Yvonne Gregory. And he decided, because he had a studio here at the the castle, he'd also sort himself out with a studio in London by investing in this, because they didn't have the money. He could then use the studio and he would respect their work. So he was a really interesting man, actually. And that would have been, what, late 1800s? This was... um, His first photograph was as a child in 1882 and his father was very proud he'd obviously given him a camera and most of his photographs were taken 1904 until his death in 1923 but this kind of reinforces what we were saying earlier basically you can still look at those pictures I can so I mean I'm I've got an embarrassing number of photographs on my phone, like 13,000 or something ridiculous. (laughs) But it might be in five years' time I won't be able to see any of them unless I do something about it and print them. I've Uh, just made a folder, actually, on my computer, which I thought I would put on a stick and try and take into snappy snaps or something to get them printed because I was Well, do one of those online books. I did one when my stepfather died just over a year ago. I want to scribble alongside it and stick in letters. 
and mementos of the oh, time. I see. Yeah, so I'm yeah, going so to do it for this. real, like a scrapbook. I'm yeah. going to do a scrapbook, actually. I That's mean, a great idea. And I just thought it was quite, quite fun. I have to say that I've just noticed on the back of your book that Joanne Lumley says, a gripping and very funny read. I loved it. And I, I still owe her for that. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael Palin also says, modest very down to earth and full of humor this is one of the best books about filming i've ever read so i he do doesn't say he's, he's never read a book about filming <laughs> before that was the only book <laughs> yes. the only book he's read about no, that was film. very kind of but it is it is incredibly interesting and and again i come back to i suppose working with someone like david attenborough just allows you to shine a light because of his presence into what you feel passionate about and try to imbue others with the passion you need the lens to do it don't you yeah i mean i think the as i say camera work is a is an easy or the camera is an easy tool to be able to share these amazing places and hopefully um it's kind of a double-edged sword because it'll impassion people about these wild places but equally they all then want to go and visit it which can partly trash it and then there's the whole carbon footprint thing but that's a whole different issue but I think just the initial thing and David Attenborough has always been um I mean I've learned from him basically he said the best way to conserve something or the best way to save something is to get is to teach people about it so they're passionate about it they'll want to learn more and then they'll then they'll want to protect it and so hopefully the camera work is kind of working alongside that to do that job. And what I think is wonderful is is how much you achieve as you get a little bit older because, I mean, that's in a sense what some of the great icons in this country have achieved, whether it's someone like the Queen who is sort of the Queen of the world in some ways mm. or David Attenborough in his own way stands apart trying to, you know, imbue people with concern and care and kindness for the other for the nature and the wildlife with whom we share the world rather than you know pillaging it carrying on from the orca photograph gavin have you seen other elements i suppose climates environments of the world that you've been photographing change um, well, today's a good example, looking out of your window at the parched grass of Highclere Castle. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I know it's summer, but this week is, I think, the hottest week on record in 90 years or something. And some people might just say, oh, it's a good summer or a hot summer. But I think it is an indication of climate change. And I have seen, you know, travelling around the world when I've gone to different locations multiple times over the years, um, I have seen those changes myself, whether it's retreating glaciers or unpredictable weather patterns, you know, tougher tornadoes, um, stronger hurricanes. Um, when I first went to the North Pole, funnily enough, uh, with David Attenborough for um, uh, Frozen Planet, the first series, um, and we went up to stay in Barneo Camp, which is about 60 miles. It's a tented camp on the ice, about 60 miles from the, the North Pole. And then you wait for a weather window and you helicopter up to the North Pole. And while we were in the camp, there were about, I think, six or seven groups of people who were going to walk that last you know the last degree to the north pole as yes. an expedition um and i think only two out of uh, that's right it was two out of nine succeeded that year because between the camp and the north pole was open sea and you can't cross that on foot or on skis and and in fact when we flew to the north pole we flew over these you know like several square miles of open ocean um, and this is at the, the North Pole. And again, this is happening more and more now. So I think now there are cruise ships which go to the North Pole. Um, and 50 years ago, you couldn't have done that. There would have been year-on-year year sea ice. So that's a very um, a very good indicator of warming seas, which is melting that, that ice. Um, 
I'm sure we've all seen changes and I'm sure we're all aware that the weather patterns are, are changing and becoming more extreme. So I think we just have to be aware and hopefully these wildlife films and conservation films will make people aware that we should just be careful about how we tread on this planet and be careful and be aware of our impact on it. And if you can reduce that, reduce that in any way, whether it's walking to the shops rather than driving or not leaving the tap running or all those small things, it, will, it may not physically change anything, but it will change our attitude of how we behave on this planet. Um, so hopefully it's still in good enough nick for our kids and grandkids and so on to enjoy. And all the other creatures, of course. It's, 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 a, it's a really interesting book, and I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it and given it as presents. And I know John Gandela Castle Manchester has also bought it as presents for some of his family as well. Fantastic. So Thank I you. hope we're contributing to you. Absolutely, your keeping me off the streets. <laughs> so, can I ask you this before we close? Where are you off to next? What do you hope to do in the next five to ten years? Um, oh, next five to ten years. I mean, I'm hoping that people will still employ me to do what I've always done. I mean, I'm probably mm. getting slightly slower, but it's interesting. I think it's a profession which is a bit like, say, medicine or law, whereby the longer you've done it, the more experienced you are, the more you know how to tackle problems, the more, I think, better judgment you have in different situations, perhaps the more refined your storytelling. So in a way, I think, hopefully I've got some longevity um, carrying on doing that. And um, so, I'm, so I'm working with David Attenborough later this month in, in the UK. Um, finishing off a series about um, the British Isles for Netflix. Um, and then October, I'm going to Borneo, which is the other side of the world, um, <laughs> to go and do some more primates, but I won't yes. say any more than that. How wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing all those programmes, and I can't thank you enough for coming to join me today. Thank well, you. I say thank you very much for asking. Hello, this is Lady Carnarvon, and just to say, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.